Okay, we are here. Having prayed now, we will look into Isaiah 49. Last week we got to Isaiah 49, verse 16. So we'll be picking up in verse 17 of Isaiah 49 this morning. And just a little bit of review, this is the, in 49, this is the second of the four servant songs in Isaiah. Uh, that we hit, hit in 49. And this is the second of four. The next, the excuse me, the next one will hit in in chapter fifty, and then in the fifty-one, there will be another one. Alright, just Derek Kidner remember states about this. After chapter 42, the question of Israel's unfitness has become more and more acute. The coming chapters will resolve the tension. Not by this servant's dismissal, talking about Israel, not by Israel's dismissal or improvement, but by the clear emergence of a true servant whose mission will be first to Israel itself. The idea behind it is that Old Covenant Israel time and time again was a miserable failure. They had been given a great commission. And so in New Covenant times, the true Israel will emerge. Okay. um, Beginning in verse 17 this morning. Uh, we'll have somebody read 17 through 26. Samuel, you've been out for a while. I'll ask you to read that. 17 uh, through 26. Yeah. Isaiah 49. 17 through 26. Read from the King James. Okay. The sun shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who lay me waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. Always gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord. You shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places in the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, captive, and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up where I was, left alone? But these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, and the captives from the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives and the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey and the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. 
All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Okay. Have someone look up Matthew 21, 43 also. Um, I'll have Owen, if you will look that up. Matthew 21, 43. I'll tell you when to read. Okay, now, in your notes here, verses 17 through 26, the remaining verses of this chapter show some of the glorious things that lie ahead for Israel. And of course, this, these promises are to those that are faithful. Uh, the Lord will certainly not forsake them, but bless them richly. The Lord's blessing is going to be upon those that are faithful. Alright, in verses 17 and 18, we see they will have victory over their enemies. And um, he uh, ends that those two verses by saying, You, Israel, shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. They will have victory eventually over wicked men. Alright, so verse 17 and 18 teaches that they will have victory over their enemies. Uh, verse 18 through 21, the desolate places will be richly inhabited. Uh, we see imagery there of a re return in sorts to the Garden of Eden. The Lord God would, when a culture is unfaithful, he will cause harsh conditions. He will turn the beautiful gardens into desolate places. And when He is pleased with His people, He will return. He will turn desolate places into a beautiful garden. Um, he does this by withholding rain or giving rain. So, those that are pleasing to Him, they'll have victory over their enemies, and the desolate places will be richly inhabited. Now, this is hyperbole, of course, where they talk about not having enough room to live. Um, that just means that they will be multiplied greatly. Uh, verse 20 says, uh, the place is too small for me. Give me a place that I may dwell. This is just hyperbole, saying that God will multiply them. And then finally in verses 22 through 26, they will be exalted and have dominion. So we see more of those verses that shows that God's people will eventually have dominion over the wicked. Even though things aren't looking good in Isaiah's day, even though things aren't looking good in our day, yet we have the promises of God that we will have the dominion, that we will have the victory. Verse 23, kings will be your foster fathers and the queens your nursing mothers. And then the last verse, verse 26, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, and your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The glorious days are ahead for the faithful people of Israel. Now, the last part of your notes there for this chapter, Old Covenant Israel would not enjoy any of this because of their unfaithfulness. 
Israel even remained unfaithful after hearing these promises of God. They would be unfaithful. This would apply to the church in the latter days. It does not apply to unfaithful Israel, but it applies to church in the latter days because unbelieving Israel will be cast aside and the church will be God's covenant people. Let's have Matthew 21, 43 read. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. Jesus there was speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. He says, I'm taking this away from you. You're not going to have any covenant blessings. I'm giving it to a people that are going to be faithful. And we will get into that more in the next chapter. And then... It's funny how these things dovetail together. Charles will be talking about this in his sermon today. I told him, I'm sorry, Charles, I'll be stealing some of your thunder, but you've got so much thunder, it doesn't matter. Anybody with as much thunder as you have, it doesn't matter. All right, any questions, comments on chapter 49? We will move on to chapter 50. And let's have an introduction to chapter 50 read. Um, Alanda, I'll have you read uh, Proverbs 19, verse 3. And just hold that. And um, I will have... Um, I'll have a volunteer to read 50, the first three verses. Who wants to volunteer? Okay. Um, oh, you've already read a verse. Such a day. Okay. <laughs> It's not the army. It's not going to hurt. Okay. I'll get back to you. I'll give you some more signs. First three, first three verses of Isaiah 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Okay. Dana, could you look up Revelation 5, verse 7 and 8? I'll tell you when to read. Alright, as an introduction to this section, and you will see later why this is a good introduction. Let's have Proverbs 19, verse 3 read. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Man twists his own way. And yet his heart frets against the Lord. We see that all the time. The Lord is blamed for all of a man's sorrows. And the problem is his own sin. And yet he blames God. Okay, in your notes. It appears that Judah is accusing God of being fickle. Several commentaries use that word fickle. So I thought if it was good enough for high-powered theologians, it's good enough for me. They are fickle. In their eyes, 
God is the problem in the relationship. It is not them. God has given them up. Instead of looking to themselves, they blamed God for their problems. Okay? However, God informs them that the problem is with them. He has not given them or their mother a certificate of divorce and he has no creditors. God never has creditors. So the problem, as he informs them before, is their iniquities and their transgressions. All kinds of sin. But the version I use put in is iniquities and transgressions. Now, God has not divorced them yet. Um, Avonlea, will you look up for us? Let's see. Jeremiah 3, 8. And I'll tell you when to read that. So God says, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Show me evidence that I've divorced you, Israel. Show me some evidence. Where is that certificate of divorce? Now, he's talking to the southern kingdom here. He's actually talking to Judah. Because evidently, the northern kingdom has already gone into captivity. All right, let's have Revelate, not Revelation, excuse me. Let's have Jeremiah 3 8 read. Saw that for all the adulteries of the faith of that faithless one, Israel, I have sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. All right, it's what Jeremiah is saying here in three eight is that Israel, what's remaining of Israel, Judah, is committing adultery. Uh, Northern Kingdom. He said he put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. But still Judah is treacherous and has played the harlot. So the fact that the northern kingdom is gone, Judah still has not repented. Now, he has divorced the northern kingdom. He hasn't divorced Judah yet. Let's look at Revelation 5, 7, and 8. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, what I consider the competent expositors of Revelation say that this is Israel's, or Judah, what's remain of Israel, their divorce decree. This book that Jesus takes is the divorce of Israel. Unfaithful Israel, God is going to take on a new bride, the church. So, He has not divorced Israel, southern kingdom, yet. Even though He has divorced the northern kingdom. He's only separated. Separated but not divorced, so to speak, from the southern kingdom. But later that's coming. And coincidentally, Charles is preaching this morning on Revelation chapter 5. And the title of his sermon is The Divorce of Israel. 
So I will leave the rest of that up to him. <laughs> Okay. Now, um, their problem is stated in verses 2 and 3. As God has stated before, no one would listen to His prophets. Verse 2, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? So, as always, and always will be in the treacherous southern kingdom. They didn't listen to the prophets. Instead, they persecuted them and killed them, including the prophet par excellent, Jesus Christ. Even though God was all sovereign and declared infallibly what would come to pass, they still would not listen to the prophets. They refused to believe that God was all sovereign, that God loved them, and that God sent the prophets to tell them to repent or perish. They still would not repent. All right, verses 4 through 9. We will have Elaine. You are the blessed one here. Read for us verses 4 through 9. And before she starts, I'll tell you, this is the second, the third servant song. Okay. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word he who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the, God, the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who, who, who will contend with me, let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Then will the Lord God helps me? Who will declare my who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear, will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Okay, sounds a lot like what happened to Jesus Christ in verses five and six. Like I said, this is the third of four servant songs. Okay. <clears throat> And Derek Kidner makes this observation concerning this. He says, After this display of patient gentleness in the first song, Isaiah 42, and the acceptance of frustrating toil in the second, which is verse 49, chapter 49, here the servant faces the active spite and fury of evil. It is only a step the reader feels to the cross. Getting closer and closer to the cross here. Some have referred this to the servant's Gethsemane. Because it's near the cross. Alright. In 
verses 4, 5, 7, and 9, we have the phrase, the Lord God. The Lord God appears four times in this psalm. Four, five, seven, and nine. And it's literally in the Hebrew, Adonai Yahweh. So we have that combination of those two Hebrew titles by God in this. And of course, when God, when God's name is used in Scripture, He has many names. You wonder why they use this one. And Isaiah uses this term, Lord God. According to Louis Burkhoff, a great systematic theologian, Dutch-American, 20th century, uh, he has one of the best systematic theologies that you can get. He's very thorough. He makes this statement about using this name. He says, Adonai points to God as Almighty Ruler, to whom everything is subject and to whom man is related to as a servant. So it's God Almighty omnipotent is what he seems to be saying. He's the Almighty Ruler. Everything is subject to God. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. He works all things to the counsel of his will. Now Yahweh, some of the older theologians use Jehovah. Some of the current theologians use Jehovah. But Yahweh points to the unchangeableness of God. So we have God Almighty, whom everything is subject, and God is unchangeable. Now, it's what he goes on to say, and we're going to critique this in a second. Yet it is not so much the unchangeableness of his essential being. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Unchangeable. It's not anything in His essential being that is in view as the unchangeableness of His relation to His people. Now, is God's relationship to His people unchangeable? God doesn't change. The creation changes. What about God's relationship to the creation? Does it change? Oh, and did you learn that out in Texas? <laughs> okay. Now, I think God's relationship to the creation obviously changes. And as Van Til would say, and if you listen to anything on the Reformed form, God never changes. His creation changes. The relationship to God and the creation changes. Things around God change, but God never changes. Never. In any way. Now, it's important to note that he says that his unchangeableness is of his relation to his people. It's not to people, but to his people. God's relationship to his people did not change. That's what Burkhoff is saying. His people is referring to the invisible church. Yeah. The ones that are truly called out. Right. Hey, Bill, is, um, is this a phrase of the Lord God? Is that unique? 
to this passage, or is that other places we know? I didn't research that, but I'm sure it's not unique to this passage. I mean, you you have the Lord God all over the place in Scripture. That the term Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. Yeah. Just kind of stands out that it's used what four times. Yeah. Right in this. He's uh, he's telling them something, but they just won't listen. <clears throat> they tell them, "I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, and I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob." So it's important to realize God does not change. These people didn't realize that. They're thinking God is fickle. But God is unchangeable. Okay? Alright, here in your notes. What God is declaring by using this as His name is that He is Almighty. That's your blank there in control of all that takes place in history and that He is unchangeably faithful. God cannot change His mind. Now, sinners do not have a good relationship with God. Impenitent sinners. Penitent sinners do. So the problem is with impenitent sinners in this passage. Okay, verse 4. <clears throat> All right, in your notes. This God takes the form of a servant. Remember, Jesus Christ being the eternal Son of God became flesh, and He took on the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2. Was there any change in the Son of God when He became flesh? He's trying to teach y'all to think so nobody gets carried away in heresy. Did the, did the Son of God change? No. No. He is exhaustively God. He does not change. But God the Father in all eternity prepared a body for Jesus. There's no divinity in that body. Looking at Jesus is not looking at divinity. It's looking at a body that God prepared for him. And you cannot mix the divine with the creature. And so there is no mixture. There was no change in, in the Son of God. The second person of Trinity did not change. Even though he did take on that body that the Father had prepared him from eternity past. Uh, excuse me. He decreed to prepare for Him that body in eternity past and in the fullness of time. Jesus took on that body. But there was no change in the Son of God. You're not saying that that Jesus is just the Son of God in a body, though. Right? He is a a divine person and he He took on flesh. And you cannot mix the divine and humanity. There's no mixture. 
The body you see of Jesus is purely part of the creation. Even though the Son of God dwells in him. In it. You can't mix the divine and the humanity. There is no mixture, confusion. You have the Son of God dwelling in a body that the Father prepared for him. Well, the body, I mean, just the body being a true body and a reasonable soul, not just uh, not just the no, spirit in a, body, in, you know, in a body. So that's, I think that's what we... Yeah. One person, two natures. He's the divine Son of God, one person, but he has two natures, this divine person and the body. Yes, a human nature and a divine nature, but he's only a divine person. That's where all the heresies come from. Yeah, if you can get, if you can get Jesus, the two persons, the two the two natures and one person correct, and that God never changes, you you got a pretty good defense against heresy. Okay. Any other comments on that? This is stuff that's not real easy to understand because our minds are so finite. Yeah, the scripture confirms the, the separateness of the two natures because there are places where referring to Jesus in his humanity does not know some things. Yeah. According to his humanity, he is not. Right. Um, um, mission. Yeah, according to his humanity, he learned as a child. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the points we're going to be getting to in just a minute. Alright, so in this, in verse 4, it speaks as to sustain people. Jesus sustains people. And then in verse 4 also, we'll get that. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as to learn. Jesus Christ, even though He is a divine person, He learned. I mean, it's not that learns like we do. He had to become fit for His office. Prophet, priest, and king. And He learned through His sufferings as the author of Hebrews tells us. It's not that he need to learn things like we do, but to become fit for his office, he learned. And that's shown in these verses here and in Hebrews. And he, being the true Israel, <clears throat> is responsive and faithful. Unlike the old covenant, unfaithful Israel. And we see in verse 6, he'll be mistreated. I gave my back to those who struck me. And um, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, obviously, referring to the way the soldiers treated Jesus on the day he was crucified. Or maybe the night before he was crucified. And then verse 7 through 9 shows that he will be sustained by God. 
Okay. I'm going to stop there because in verse 8, He is near who justifies me. Who, who will contend with me? Let us stand together who is my adversary. Let him come near me. We see that Jesus was accused of many things. But if any of those things had been true, He would not have been fit for His to be a Savior. So we are going to get into that beginning next week. Anybody have anything to add to what I have tried to teach today? Okay. Can we say that the Son of God changed in an appearance? As Philippians tends to indicate as far as the appearance of a man in the form of a body? The way we see Him, He had changed because we saw His body. Uh, but the eternal Son of God, there was no change in Him. Change all around Him. Ontologically, no change. Ontologically, no change. No body. Until huh? the incarnation, no body. Yeah. yeah. From eternity past, He had no body. Alright, Mike, close us in prayer, please. Father, thank you so much for this first day of the week.